We've actually been in this sermon series in, in the book of 1 John, and uh, today we're actually going to be f- doing chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, and then we'll actually be finishing up 1 John next week uh, as we finish the sermon series, and then we'll have a new sermon series starting in August. And so, uh, very excited to be back with you guys. Uh, as you know, 1 John is basically this book, as we've been talking about week after week, it's this eyewitness account of Jesus, an eyewitness, not an account of Jesus, an eyewitness of Jesus, who's basically writing to the early church about what is life with Jesus like, and what are the distinguishing markers of what Christian faith looked like in the midst of a world that was so new to Christianity. So you can imagine, John is using these different images of basically introducing this idea of Christian life. And one of the things that we've been talking about is he speaks in all these different images of love and hate. And one of the kind of controlling uh, images is this image of light and darkness. Uh, Light and darkness. Now, today's sermon is actually called The Life We've Always Wanted. Now, here's the thing. I know that some of you, especially as New Yorkers, you're like, you're not going to tell me what I want. And uh, just stay with me for a moment. I should have probably titled this, pa- this, this message, The Life uh, That Christians Believe We All Want. Okay? So if you're someone who's basically like, you're, you're even offended by that idea that somehow I'm going to preach a message about the life we've always wanted. I want to actually propose to you what Christians believe about a life that God offers to us, a vision for life, whether you're someone who's secular or you're religious, whatever background you come from, that today, that perhaps there's a compelling vision of life and the world that we live in that for you might sound attractive or might sound distinctive. And here's basically, again, what the Christians have always believed about light and darkness and what life with Jesus is like. Now, uh, the passage that Tina just read, basically 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Check out what it says. It says, everyone who believes uh, that Jesus is a Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child well. Now, if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, you know that we've been dealing with these themes of love and darkness. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. Now, John is basically tying together two of these themes. One theme is loving God. What does it mean then to love God? And what does it mean then to carry out his commands? And he ties these things together that love and carrying out commands are together. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. Now, here's the thing. You're probably wondering immediately, you're like, wait a minute, keeping his commands, I knew it. That's what this church is about. It's about all these rules and legalism and keeping commands. Gosh, it was so good when he was talking about love versus hate. Now, all of a sudden, he's talking about commands. What's his problem? And I know that against modern sensibilities, the, the impulse is like, I don't want to live under someone's commands. I want to live freely. I want to be liberated because I'm a New Yorker, right? I'm like, right? There's like this, there's this way in which each one of us want to live this certain way. But notice, when John is actually talking about commands and love, check out what he writes immediately after that. He says this. He says, and his commands are not burdensome. It's almost like he anticipates what you and I are already thinking when it comes to this idea of commands and following commands. Because how do commands and loving someone go together? And see, here's what John is proposing. He's basically saying, his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. See, he's talking about something different about this loving kind of uh, relationship with God. And he's, what he's saying is, these commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. There's something about commands and overcoming and love that he's talking about. 
Now, to review in this book of 1 John, one of the things that we've been talking about is there's this theme of what Christianity has always been about is truth and love, or love and truth. That these are two sides of the same coin. For instance... Uh, the, the idea of Jesus coming with truth and love. He's someone who, who is someone who has integrity, but is also fully embracing and loving. Uh, and Christianity is actually embracing both of these sides of truth and love. We're people who believe in absolute truth. Do you remember from a, a few weeks ago about having, we, we don't have absolute knowledge, but we believe in absolute truth. Um, and this is where faith comes in because faith is what leads us to believe in this absolute truth and there is this truth there is this standard but we also believe in being the most loving kind of people now oftentimes we can often go to one extreme or the other there's one extreme where we're all about truth and you need to follow the truth and you need to believe this and that and uh, unfortunately in today's world so many Christians have gotten the, the reputation of being judgmental of being harsh, of basically being these truth mongers who are trying to change everyone's mind. And truth ends up becoming divorced of love. Now, on the other hand, there's another extreme, and one extreme might be, I'm all about love. We're all about everyone should be agreeable with one another, and everyone should tolerate one another. And yet, what love actually looks like without truth then becomes someone who has no principles of what is right or what's wrong. And whenever there is injustice or evil, it's difficult to speak out against that if all we're about is love and tolerance and embrace. And so that's why this whole Christian view is basically that truth and love actually go together equally. Now we see this embodied in the person of Jesus. So, for instance, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he actually gives a teaching. He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, he also says, I and the Father are one. In other words, Jesus himself is embodying truthfulness. Or another way of putting it is holiness. Now, holy simply means set apart. So, Jesus is basically saying, I'm the embodiment of truth or holiness. So, he's someone then who lives with integrity and holiness. And yet... Also in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, Jesus actually has this moniker, and the moniker that's given to him is friend of sinners. Friend of sinners, how did he get that? It's because somehow people knew him as being someone who was incredibly inclusive and embracing. So here's the thing about Jesus then. He's both fully holy, fully set apart, he has integrity. He is someone who with his words, with his ethic, with his body, every single part of who he is, is holy. And yet, he's also fully loving. And somehow Jesus embodies both of these things. And so in Jesus, we see the very definition then of what kind of a life with him is like. It's a life of being fully holy and yet fully loving. Now, one way to see this in Jesus is Jesus is someone who, when it comes to his holiness, when it comes to his sexual integrity, his personhood, he was someone who lived out a life of sexual wholeness and integrity in terms of his ethic. And yet he was someone when it came to people who had committed acts that violated all sorts of norms related to sexual ethics. He was someone that was incredibly embracing and, and welcoming and loving. 
Now, this is the task of what it means to be a follower of Jesus then, is to be a people then who embrace both holiness. What does it mean for us to be both holy and yet loving and embracing? What does this look like? And this is the invitation of the life that Jesus offers to us. Now, if I were to give this kind of overview of what this kind of vision is, this vision of holy and loving, I would say it's the word life. And later on in 1 John chapter 5 that Tina just read, this is where John introduces this other metaphor of life. He says, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. The word for life is the word zoe. Can I hear you say zoe? Zoe. What a fun word to say, right? And this life or zoe is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Zoe, whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. See, he's tying together all of these themes of love, commands, and life and Zoe. And look in the Gospel of John what the writer writes about this Zoe. He says, I have come, Jesus has come, that they or the people might have Zoe. And that you might have it not to just kind of 25% capacity, but have it to the full. Have it brimming over, having, have it teeming with life and energy and joy and buoyancy. This is the kind of life that Jesus is offering. He's talking about a Zoe kind of life. Now, Zoe is not simply just one's physical life, life versus death. He's talking about a life, like I mentioned, that's brimming with all sorts of goodness and stuff that's coming out of it. This is the the life that Jesus is basically offering. And it's a life that's coupled with keeping, that carrying out his commands and love. All of this is mixed in with truth and grace and holiness and love. And this is what offers us a certain kind of life. Now, some of you might be saying to me, like, okay, I get that. But honestly, I don't really want that kind of life. Uh, in fact, I, I'm searching for something different. Have you ever said that before? Have you ever thought that before? And maybe you're like, listen, you've already told me about this life that Jesus offers, but I don't necessarily want that. Charles Taylor, uh, the Canadian philosopher, actually wrote a book called A Secular Age. And in his book, A Secular Age, he talks about how today, for modern people, we have often drifted away from religious kind of transcendence and truth. And the reason why is basically because as religion and faith has become irrelevant, each of us are searching for something as it relates to meaning and purpose and the transcendent. Now, here's the thing. As human beings, we will instantly, we will, or not instantly, but we will inevitably gravitate towards what is transcendent. Because we all, at one point or another, will ask the question, what is the meaning of life? What happens after I die? What is this all about? Uh, if anything, over the, the past year and a half during the pandemic, you've probably asked these questions before. In fact, right now, at an all-time high, uh, people, as it relates to career satisfaction, is at an all-time low. In fact, if you're unsatisfied, could you just, no, I'm just kidding, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> some of you are like, are my coworkers here? Are there, yeah, is there, this being filmed? Uh, it's, it's at an all-time high. Why is unsatisfaction at an all-time high? It's because many of us, during the pandemic, we've all been wrestling with, is this really what I want to do with my life? Is this really matter? In, does this really matter in the grand scheme of everything that's happening when we're isolated and away from people? You know what's crazy is that what, what's, for me, more, most acutely what happened during the pandemic, because you know, here, here we were, we were all isolated. I remember those initial weeks in March. And because sports 
was also, and sports is like my only hobby. I'm a very uninteresting person, and sports is like my only hobby. And so that's what we're doing in the Euro Cup final later today. But anyhow, <laughs> but like I, so, but sports, nothing was happening. And so believe me, I was like, I was like, what's the meaning of life? You know, <laughs> because all of a sudden sports, was, which was a really great distraction in the midst of everything happening uh, in my life normally, like now sports was gone as well. And there was even more time for me to be pondering some of these questions of the transcendent. And what Charles Taylor basically talks about is how in each human being then, there's this engine of longing that exists for each one of us. Now, James K.A. Smith, he would actually, in, in analyzing Charles Taylor's work, one of the things that he talks about, he introduces this phrase of haunting imminence. And the reason why this phrase kind of sticks out to me is that word haunting, right? This, this haunting eminence that each one of us feel at different moments in our lives. This haunting eminence towards what is transcendent, what is real, what, what, what should I base my life upon? Is it my career? Is it these relationships that end up failing me? Is it sports and athletics? What, and, and what uh, Charles Taylor, really, in his book, A Secular Age, he says that all of us as human beings, whether we cling to religion or not, we are longing for transcendence. We are longing, and because we long for this transcendence, we have this haunting imminence about us. We're constantly wondering, what does give me life? What does give me purpose? What is all of this about? You know, I was watching a documentary this past week, and it's a documentary called The Weight of Gold. And many of you might know that the, uh, the Olympics are happening this summer in Tokyo. And so this was a documentary that was actually created by Michael Phelps, the most decorated champion in Olympic, U.S. Olympic history. Uh, and one of the things that Michael Phelps has actually been very um, open about is his own struggle with depression as well as alcohol abuse. And he went through a couple of big crashes in his own life where um, that were really these warning signs that led him to, to pursue kind of a life of a deeper kind of emotional health. Now, what was interesting is in this documentary that was, again, spearheaded by Michael Phelps, there's all sorts of Olympians, past Olympians in the U.S. that were featured. So, for instance, Apollo Ono, who was a short track speed skater, um, Sasha Cohen, who was a, uh, a figure skater, um, a couple of bobsledders, Lola Jones, who was a track and field star. So these different, uh, yeah, sports, again, that's just my thing. So some of you are like, well, how does he know this stuff? But, uh, but in, there's these different testimonies of these different athletes and the weight of gold. One of the, the primary purposes of him writing this is to bring awareness to the mental health challenges that Olympic athletes go through. And Michael Phelps actually guesstimates that 80% of him, whether people win or lose, again, he's the most decorated champion, and he was saying it, it, whether they win or they lose, 80% go through a season of depression after the Olympics. And what was interesting and startling, like watching these testimonies, some of them who achieved gold medal success and others who did not, what was fascinating was each one was sharing about how that feeling of this emptiness after the Olympics. There's this single-minded pursuit of training for four years, and then you have 10 to 20 seconds to make your life matter. I mean, it's amazing as they kind of uh, recount this. And whether they win or they lose, 
you get all the glory after pouring yourself in after the, the four years, or you, you lose miserably. Lola Jones talks about how she hit one final hurdle, and as a result, she lost her gold medal, and to how that haunts her to this day. And in this documentary, they're talking about how yeah, people think that the life of an Olympian is this life of glamour and intrigue, but they don't know that so many of us are miserable. And one of the things that they talk about is how they're all young athletes. Basically, the prime of their life is like 15 to 25. And then suddenly their Olympic career is over. And then they have to think, what's next? And for so many of them, where they've been defined by this single-minded pursuit, it's so difficult to, to kind of get a sense of like, yeah, what is next? It's this haunting eminence that plagues every single one of us at one point or another. And we meet it whenever we face disappointment, difficulty, challenges. Or when we've tasted elation, but then after that mountaintop experience, we've all had this feeling of like, is there more to life than this? That is haunting eminence. See, but it's not only in the West that we experience this, right? That's a a purely fundamental uh, American thing. Uh, I was actually reading in the New York Times this past week, there was this article uh, that says these Chinese millennials are chilling. Um, I didn't add the G because I'm cool. And uh, uh, <laughs> chilling and Beijing isn't happy, right? And uh, there was this article in the New York Times and apparently there was this one young person who's a millennial who on social media basically wrote kind of this blog about um, this idea of the translation is lying flat. <laughs> and here's a picture of it, of lying flat. And one of the things that he outlines as this young person in China is that over the past 20 to 30 years, there's been this incredible growth in China, uh, not only as a world influence, but in their economy. And so much of the story that they've been told, especially as in China, you know, so much of uh, the, the country was impoverished, but has now grown into this superpower, especially economically, was how this promise that was sold to him from these older generations was, if you work hard and you make a lot of money, then you will be fulfilled. And one of the things that he's realized is that... Uh, he's still not fulfilled working hard and making a lot of money and climbing that ladder. And so he coins this phrase of lying flat. And apparently the Chinese government flagged it and actually uh, so that it couldn't go viral anymore. But, <laughs> but the New York Times covered it. And the New York Times talks about this theme, though, of lying flat in these younger generations of people who are asking this question. Wait, is this what it's all about? Working really hard and making a lot of money? Is this, is this, is this it, Really? And our country becoming a superpower? Is this, is this really what it's all about? See, that's haunting eminence. It's haunting eminence. Whether you're on top of the hill in your finance job or in your legal profession or whatever else it might be, or in your law school, or you're someone who's unemployed and searching, every single one of us at some point or another, we sense this haunting eminence. And it's in this kind of mindset that Jesus actually offers something different. He offers a kind of life where he says, I've come. See, don't you see? I didn't come just to give you fire insurance to save you from hell, which is what so many Christians might believe about what this life is about. He says, no, I've come to give you Zoe. 
but not only just kind of physical life, I've come to give you zoe to the full for abundance. Now, I I thought what I would do is just list some of the teachings of Jesus as it relates to what are some of the teachings of Jesus then? What does it mean to carry out his commands? What does it mean to actually love God, carry out his commands, and have this zoe? Well, check this out. These are some things. Have grace for yourself and others. Love your enemies. Stand up against injustice. Live with personal integrity. Endure suffering with great character and resolve. Be generous with everything, including your money. Serve the poor and marginalized. Now, these are just summaries of the teachings of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Some of you might look at this list, and and here's the thing that we're aware of, right? This list... It's not like these things are easy things. It's not like this is a lying flat kind of life. Some of these, in fact, can cause much difficulty and strenuousness. And yet here is the kind of life that Jesus offers. Now, some of you might look at this list, though, and you say, you know what, this is a compelling vision for life. However, honestly, like if this is all Christianity is, a list of do's and don'ts, and a list of, okay, do this, and don't do this, and do this, and don't do this. I, like, is that what religion is all about? Well, no. And I'll show you why. Because in First John, remember, it talks about love, keeping his commands. His commands are not burdensome. And then notice what John writes about why his commands are not burdensome. He says, this is the victory that has overcome the world. What does that mean? This is a victory that is even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. See, he brings it back. So he's talking about love and commands. He's tying it together. And then he brings it back to Jesus. And notice what he writes about Jesus. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Now, scholars have wrestled with, what does this mean, water and blood? Why is he bringing this up? What is water and blood? Well, there's basically two different views that scholars have kind of settled on. One view is that water and blood actually refers to when Jesus was crucified. There's this historical account where he's pierced in his side and water and blood flow. That's one kind of belief of where this connection of water and blood comes from. Another belief is water throughout the scriptures is used as kind of this metaphor for cleansing or for baptism. And Jesus, of course, was someone who came to bring cleaning. And he was also someone who uh, was baptized himself. And the blood refers to him dying on the cross. Now, both of those views, I'm not sure which one I agree with. But here's what both of those views point to. See, the reason why John is bringing up Jesus and water and blood, and you'll see, he did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And the the passage goes on and on about this Jesus person. The reason why he's talking about this, because he's talking about, again, he's talking about love related to commands, and then he goes straight from love and commands to Jesus, the person of Jesus who actually lived and died and who wants a relationship with me and you. To have a relationship in this manner where you can have faith in this person who actually came to us. Here's what John is basically doing. He's basically saying, you see, 
So many people, their belief and their image of God is this God who is transcendent, who is above and beyond all things. And he's the kind of God, of course, that would give us these laborious commands to live by all of these do's and don'ts because that's who God is. He is so transcendent. And yet what John is saying is, see, don't you see the uniqueness of the Christian message? God is being revealed to you not as someone who is simply transcendent and other, but a God who has come close. A God who has sent his son to shed his blood so that he can be in relationship with you. So that God is not some unworldly deity But instead, God is the one who is close, who is near, and who wants to be in a relationship with you. You see, and this is why Jesus, when he talks about life, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is why when Jesus would talk, and he would be talking to his disciples, and anyone who would listen, he would be talking about a relationship with Him, not a dogma, not simply this transcendent figure, but someone who has come close. And the ultimate sign of His commitment to this relationship is the water and the blood that He would give His life for you to demonstrate to you and to me that He loves you and is for you and wants to be in relationship with you. And this is the invitation Of God. That God is not simply distant and transcendent, but He is close. And it is not about a bunch of do's and don'ts, but instead it's about you and me in this friendship relationship, this dynamic where we've been captured by something bigger than ourselves, a God who loves us enough to die for us. You see, this is the beauty of the Christian. This is how explosive the message of Christianity is. Especially when so many of the beliefs about God is He is this transcendent other kind of figure. Now, a couple of weeks ago, um, I talked about this passage in Revelation chapter 3. There's, Jesus is actually, He's writing, or He's saying this to the church, and it's it's, it's in a letter in the book of Revelation that's being written to seven churches. And one of the churches, this is what he, he's, Jesus says. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And I knock so that you will follow a bunch of commands that I give. No, 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 he doesn't say that. I mean, isn't this beautiful? Look at the image. He says, I'm just knocking at the door. And the reason why I'm knocking at the door is because if you hear my voice and you listen to me and you open the door, I will come in and set you straight. <laughs> No. I'll come in and eat with you and you with me. We'll enjoy some pizza and some cold water together. (laughs) Probably something better than that, guys. But but our church is doing the best we can. He says, if if you just open the door, that haunting eminence, 
that longing for something more. What if it is Jesus? And what if all it takes is just opening the door? You know, I shared this image. It's an image, uh, it's a painting by William Hunt, an English painter in the 1850s. And it's called Light of the World. And it's this picture of Jesus, and it actually depicts this image of Jesus knocking on a door, mimicking what's happening in the book of Revelation. And one of the things that I pointed out last time when I, when I pointed this out is this door very intentionally actually does not have a handle on the outside. And the reason why is because like Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus is just standing at the door and knocking. And the handle is on the inside. The same is true for you and for me. It's a matter of simply opening the door. Of saying, Jesus, you're, you're right. I've been chasing my career. I've been chasing money. I've been chasing these relationships. I've been chasing alcohol. I've been chasing sports. I've been chasing shopping. Whatever it is, whatever that haunting eminence might be, I've just been chasing. And I'm tired of chasing. And I'm ready to open the door. Or I'm ready to open the door again. To have you be the one who fulfills my deepest longings. To have God be the one who's given me the life I've always wanted.